Remain standing for our gospel lesson and sermon text from Luke chapter 1. Submit yourself to the word of God. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown the strength. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this song, this poem, this inspired hymn from Mary and from your spirit. And we pray that it would do its work in us and among us, in our hearts and in our body of conforming us to the image of your son and giving us a bigger vision and understanding of the gospel of her son of the Son of God, your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> it's good to be back with y'all. See if I still remember how to do this. In Scripture, the Lord often tells His people to remind Him of His promises. Have you ever noticed that? Many of the Bible's prayers and songs... Remind God to do what God said he would do. In our family worship last week, as we are reading through the Bible, we read about the flood. And the text says that the rainbow reminds God not to flood the earth ever again. But our text today reminds us that God is incapable of forgetting his promises to his people. He's incapable of breaking his promises to his people. And so when we remind him, it's not because he's forgetful. He cannot forget. His nature will not allow him to forget. If we forget to remind God, he still remembers. He helps his people, Mary says, in remembrance of his Mercy, mercy that he established, promises that he established, he remembers. So we return today, as promised, to the Magnificat, and that's what Mary's song is called. It's named after the first verb in the Latin translation of the Bible. Magnificat means magnify. And that's what Mary does here. She magnifies God in this song. 
She, she makes God big, as I put it uh, last month. She makes God big in her heart by praising Him and exalting Him for His holy character and for His mighty deeds. And it's impressive when you consider how young Mary is. How, how, how young she was when she wrote this song. She was only a teenager. Now, in previous sermons, I repeated the common view that Mary would have been in uh, uh, her very early teens. But I should have qualified that better. We don't actually know her age. And, and the more you look into how scholars arrive at the age of 12 or 13, the more it seems that the evidence is in, inconclusive. But everyone can agree that Mary couldn't have been much older than 15 or 16. And here she is writing this biblically rich and doctrinally dense hymn of praise. It's flowing out of her. So how, how do you think this young girl from Nazareth was able to weave Old Testament images and themes into her song the way she does in the Magnificat? God didn't zap her with spiritual maturity and theological depth at the last minute you know, as the angel is arriving so that she'd be ready for the task. And, and we can't just say, well, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Yes, but the Spirit always uses the, the context and the background and the knowledge of the humans and the maturity, the theological understanding of the humans through which he inspires his word, especially in situations like that. So when you read the Psalms, which are inspired... that. We also need to make sure we're reading those psalms and praying those psalms and singing those psalms with understanding that this is there's a human author as well as a divine author behind this. And that's how we understand and interpret Scripture properly by understanding the author's intent and communicative purpose. And so Mary had been walking with God and hiding his word in her heart for many years by the time the angel visits her. Her center was God and her lifeblood was his word. And so what she had been putting inside of her since she was a little girl was now coming out in the form of a song that Christians have been singing and studying, putting to music, singing in worship for about 2,000 years. In the first sermon on this passage, we focused on how Throughout the whole song, Mary makes God big in her soul. God is magnificent to her. In verse 51, she sees God's big, strong arm on display in creation and history in particular. And in her own life, as he raises up this lowly maidservant. So Mary's song is not about Mary. It's not centered on Mary. It's about God and his mighty works. It's God-centered because Mary was, was God-centered. It's about how God regarded her in her lowliness, how God blessed her beyond what she deserved, how God employed his strong arm to save her, to bless her, how God glor is glorifying his name through her. And the more I meditate on the Magnificat, the more I'm impressed with Mary's keen awareness in the whole song, keen awareness of the power and providence of God. Do you see that as, as I read it, as you heard it? 
as you study it. Her, her song celebrates the providence of God in history and in her life. Prov, providence it might be a word, it's not a word that we hear or use every day, but it refers to the sovereign work of God upholding, guiding, and caring for his creation. In other words, providence is God's sovereign orchestration of everything that happens in all of history and in all of creation at every level. The doctrine of God's providence has fallen, fallen on somewhat hard times, perhaps. In, in older literature, particularly if you read, say, the, the writings of America's founders, God is often referred to as providence, right? The capital P. The doctrine of providence reminds us that God constantly, the operative word there in this sense is constantly sustains and governs his creation. There's never been a nanosecond in which God was not actively and personally upholding and running the universe. It's not as though God created the cosmos and then wound it up like a clock so that it would run on its own while he stepped out of the picture and just sort of let the laws of nature unwind, as it were. No, what, what God created in six days in Genesis 1, he has been personally sustaining with his powerful right arm ever since. This is very important. He doesn't just uphold creation at the macro level. He also governs it at the micro level level, minute by minute and second by second, every moment of history and every visible and invisible aspect of history in heaven and on earth is under God's all-powerful governance. If we had to come up with a theme that describes the, the faith of the people of God in Scripture, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it would, it would be the statement that thunders from the mouths of the redeemed in Revelation 19.6. You remember what it is? The Lord God omnipotent reigns. Omnipotent means all-powerful. A similar statement shows up in a few places in the Psalms. The Lord Yahweh reigns. The Lord God omnipotent reigns means that God the only God, God the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, as, as we now know him, as he's revealed himself in his Son, is the only God. He is the all-powerful king of everything. It's been said of the monarchs of England that they reign but do not rule. They, they fill a position but exhibit no power. They're impotent placeholders. Not so the king of heaven and earth. He reigns and he rules. He sits on the throne in the highest heaven and he determines everything that happens in the subatomic particles at the center of the earth. The doctrine of providence, as Mary understands it, means that God, because he is in control of everything all the time, he can and he does bring men down and raise men up. That's his doing. It's his prerogative. And he can do it when and however he wants. And that's what he does. That's what she says in verse 52. 
He has put down the mighty from their thrones, and he has exalted the lowly. That, that, that brief sentence there gives us a pretty full picture of how our God works and thinks, how his providence plays out. And we'll be able to see this even more clearly at the very end of history when we look back after the final judgment and God puts everything to rights. And we re- when we read the word mighty in verse 52, in our minds, when you're reading that, you know, put, put you know, scare quotes or whatever, put quotes around uh, mighty in verse 52, right? You know, he brings down the, the mighty. Mary is sort of being ironic here. Up in verse 49, we looked at the first half of this song last time, but up in, up in verse 49, she used a similar word to describe the might of God. If you, if you have your Bibles open, you can see it's probably in the New King James, probably most translations, it, it uses the same English word, mighty, to, to talk about God's might. He who is mighty has done great things. But here in verse 52, she uses a slightly different word, even though it gets translated the same. He has put down the mighty. And there's the, one, one point here is that there's only one mighty one. And all the other would-be potentates don't even really deserve to be called mighty. The, the word has the same root, but it's a different word. They, they are infinitely weak compared to God. I wonder how often we think about the power and the providence of our God, the God. It's it's a comforting doctrine. You're, You're missing out if you don't believe in the absolute sovereignty of God in his providence. It's a comforting doctrine because it's the solution to the problem of our frailty. And weakness, feebleness. You you and I are fragile and feeble at our best. Life itself is fragile. We're, We're vulnerable creatures. Even when we don't realize it, our technology shields us from this reality, but it doesn't diminish the reality. Our comfort in the face of our weakness, our consolation in the face of life's fragile and fleeting nature is the mighty and everlasting hand, arm of God. That's our comfort. God's not weak. It's like the song says, uh, Jesus loves the little children of the world. I'm sorry, Jesus loves me this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak. We are weak. That's about all of us. He is strong. That's our comfort in the face of our fragility, feebleness. I thought about this a lot last month as I considered what the outcome might have been with Jude apart from the advances of modern science, for which I am very grateful and as I thanked God for his provision and, and favorable providence, I also remembered that ultimately 
Life is just as fragile now as it was 400 years ago or 4,000 years ago. God still has the same power and prerogative to give life and to take life at any moment. Our, our technology can't thwart God's providence and power, nor can it assist God's providence and power as if to, to make it better, a better outcome than it would have been otherwise, right? <clears throat> After all, he's the one in his providence who gave us the technology. God decides exactly what happens and exactly when it happens, and modern advances are no more than mere means that accomplish his predetermined ends. The Lord God, omnipotent, all-powerful, reigns. So we, we worry and wonder and fret and fuss about the corruption and incompetence of our earthly rulers. And sometimes in that we forget who is really running things, no matter who's in the earthly office. We, we sometimes obsess about which earthly ruler we should vote for and forget that no matter who occupies the various offices of earthly government, the Lord God omnipotent reigns and rules over all, and his government is the only one that will have no end. <clears throat> this is where Mary is coming from, and this is what is coming out of her, this understanding of history, of God, his power, his providence, how he works, how his justice and his mercy land. So in terms of a sermon outline, the first point has been that God displays his power and providence in all of creation and in all of history, which is really a summary of the whole song. Now, the second point is that God scatters the proud. God scatters the proud in his providence. And we get that from verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. We might inc include the first part of verse 52. He has put down the mighty from their thrones. The scattering of the proud in verse 51 is the function of what? In the first part of verse 51. <clears throat> Say it. The scattering in the second part of 51 is the result of what? It's produced by what? It's done by what in the first part? His, his strong arm. I saw it lip. I saw it mouthed. The pride of men is like the pride of the pieces on a chessboard. <clears throat> Those pieces really think they're accomplishing something important, right? They, they, they tend to forget as they're moving about and doing all this work, they tend to forget their dependence on the hand that keeps sovereignly moving them around the board. The bishops and queens and knights are proud of their positions and power and prowess. And they're especially proud of the fact that they're not pawns. But even the pawns have become proud of their achievements. And of course, the king, who believes he's at the center of the world, Everything revolves around him. He entertains visions of grandeur, even though he can only move one square at a time. And the far more powerful queen is his main protector. But at any moment, if the table 
becomes uneven. Or if someone's arm sweeps across the board, all those proud pieces will fall and be scattered all over. It could happen instantly, and the mighty, proud king, as well as the other self-important pieces, would be helpless in the matter. The pride of men is no sillier than the pride of chess pieces. Mary would have had Psalm 2 memorized, and her song confirms that she did. David opens Psalm 2 saying, Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. Okay, all these chess pieces down here, making all these plans. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, Yahweh, and against his Messiah, the anointed one, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They can't keep us tied down. They can't restrict us. Now, this describes a, a summit meeting of the most powerful potentates in the world. <clears throat> they're they're forming, forming a coalition with the purpose of overthrowing God and his Messiah. And what's God's response in the next verse? It, it doesn't say, he who sits in the heavens wonders how he's going to handle all these world superpowers who are combining forces against him. No, of course not. They're just chess pieces. His response is a belly laugh. The next verse in Psalm 2 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. That means he mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his wrath and terrifies them in his fury. It's like he, in, instantly they become terrified. God comes all the way down to earth so that he can see all these weapons of mass destruction that are aimed at him. And then he laughs and says, boo. And everyone is terrified by his fury. A few verses down in Psalm 2, it says the Messiah will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So it's worse than the chess pieces falling to the ground and scattering it's like an iron rod shattering a clay pot into a million pieces. How does any of this apply to us? None of us is a raging ruler or a plotting king, right? We're not at that summit meeting. No, we're on the right side. We're in Christ. But inside every one of us, is a lingering, self-satisfied monarch who wants to dethrone God and take the throne for himself or herself. Beware of the, the subtle snare of pride in your life. And there's a lot of ways to be proud. Good looks can produce pride. Skill at an instrument. Success in your job. The praise of other men. All these can be sources of pride. Intelligence has made a lot of Christians very proud throughout history. If you find yourself thinking about or letting others know about how smart you are, then pride 
has a very dangerous foothold in your heart. Having obedient children, being faithful in church attendance, having your financial ducks in a row, having the right theology, holding a place of authority in the community or in your home, all of these can be sources of pride apart from spiritual vigilance. Mary teaches us that if we're holding on to these things, if, if you're exalting yourself because of some gift or skill or position that God has given you, if, if your accomplishments and abilities form your identity that you try to project in a certain kind of way to others to be admired for it, it then you're like the king on the chessboard. You've developed an inflated view of yourself, and you don't really recognize your limitations. You're sitting on the throne that belongs to God. You are mighty in your own eyes. You have visions of grandeur. You imagine things in your heart that are not based in reality about yourself. So be careful, fellow pilgrims. Be careful lest you drift from the path and end up in a, on the wrong path and in a bad place when the great reversal comes that Mary is talking about in this whole song, uh, hymn. The great reversal when things are flipped around, when God scatters the proud in the imaginations of their hearts and puts down the mighty from their thrones and exalts the lowly. The first point was that God displays his power and providence in all of creation and all of history. Second point was that God scatters the proud in his providence. The third point is that God fills the hungry in his providence. Verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Most of us, basically every one of us in this room, faces the danger of being rich in things. Being rich in things makes it easier to be poor in, in God. Or we could say being rich in things also makes it easier to be rich in spirit and poor in God. Because you can pass your days imagining that you're self-sufficient and that you have no need of God. After all, you've got insurance on everything. Your retirement fund is, is pretty sound. And there's money coming in every month. But Mary's not only or even primarily talking about people who are rich in dollars and cents. After all, there is... There, there's no absolute condemnation of being rich in Scripture. There are dangers associated, but not condemnation. In fact, uh, one of the reasons Luke wrote the book of Acts, Acts to Theophilus is to show a rich guy how to be faithful to the Lord, which is why you see these examples in Luke and in Acts of, of rich people following the Lord, honoring the Lord, using the resources for the Lord's kingdom, for the ministry of Jesus and the ministry 
of his church after he leaves. The main problem with the rich in verse 53 is not that they are full of fine food, but that they are full of themselves. Being satisfied with self is even more dangerous than being satisfied with material things, even though they often can go together. What what does Jesus tell the, the wealthy Laodiceans in Revelation 3? Remember, that's the church that's rich. Their their members have means. They were affluent people who thought they needed nothing. He says in Revelation 3.17, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So these rich people... We're poor, poor in God. A few decades later, Mary's son would preach a sermon that echoes verse 53. It's recorded in the same book we're in, Luke, Luke's Gospel, chapter 6. Blessed are you who are poor. He fleshes that out in Matthew 5 as poor in spirit. For, your, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now. For you shall be satisfied later, is the implication. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. See the reversal there? He's echoing that reversal in his mother's song. We should be clear again about what Jesus and Mary are saying and not saying. In in Scripture, there's no blanket condemnation of being rich in things, but there is a blanket condemnation in being rich in spirit. Being rich in spirit means having no sense of your spiritual poverty and dependence on, uh, poverty before and dependence on God. These are the the pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstrap types who think they've earned whatever they have without God's help, not realizing that everything we have has been given to us by God. And and such self-sufficient people run the risk, run the risk of being opposed by God himself because God resists who? The proud. But he gives grace to who? The humble. And he also gives grace to the hungry. Filling them with good things. Being hungry and being humble go together. The path of blessing is the path of hunger. That may include physical hunger at times. It's true that being physically hungry, whether through fasting or because of a lack of food, can lead to the kind of hunger Mary and Jesus talk about. But the focus is on hungering for righteousness. The spiritual hunger. And that's one of the points of of fasting, by the way, is to aid you in your hunger for righteousness. Do you have an appetite for the things of God? Or are you so filled up with yourself and with the fast food meals of the world that you never really develop a craving for Christ? 
Some of you have probably gone a long time without feeling any hunger pains for the things of the Lord. We all have those seasons, right? Some of you perhaps have never, you don't know what I'm talking about, you've never experienced a hungry soul. Or, or you do, but you don't know what it means or how to, to, to direct it. In, in a sense, all of us have hungry souls that can only be satisfied by God. But if you don't know what it means to be hungry for righteousness, then you also don't know what it means. You've never experienced the joy of having a ravenous soul satisfied by the Savior. Do you want to experience that? Is that something that you want to be a part of your life? Do you want to be filled up by God, with God, by God? Then you must get hungry. Which means you've got to abstain from the things that you're filling your soul up with. Leaving no room for the bread from heaven. Because God fills, he says, the hungry. It's a prerequisite to being filled. Is to be ravenous, to be hungry. And Mary says he fills the hungry and sends away empty-handed those who are self-satisfied, self-sufficient, rich in spirit, mighty, quote-unquote mighty. Mary's entire song lays out two different paths. Kind of like Psalm 1. You know how Psalm 1 does that? The, the, the way of the righteous and the way of the, the wicked. And it kind of goes from one to the other throughout that psalm. She does something similar. Mary, it, it lays out two paths. One leads to being filled up with God's food. The other leads to empty-handedness. At around A.D. 100, so kind of at the end of what's called the apostolic era, an anonymous book was written called the Didache, which is the Greek word that means teaching, the teaching is what the book's called. And the Didache is something, it, it, it's something of a treatise on church order. It gives instruction on things like church membership and, and baptism and how they work together and all these things about church life and, and governance, rituals, worship. And the first sentence of the Didache says this. Very first sentence, right out of the gates. There are two ways. One of life and one of death. But there is a great difference between the two. There is a great difference between the two ways. The two paths. This could work as a summary for Mary's song. She sings about two ways, two paths. She doesn't use the words life and death, but the idea is the same. It leads to life. One leads to life, one leads to death. Her words are lowly and proud, lowly and mighty, hungry and rich. And there is a great difference between the two ways. 
Which of Mary's words mark your life? Are you lowly and hungry? Are you ravenous for the things of God? Are you poor in spirit, knowing your dependence on God, your spiritual poverty before him? Or are you mighty and rich and proud? Mary finishes the Magnificat by turning our attention to God's faithfulness. So I'll remind you once more of our points. First, God displays his power and providence and creation in all of creation and all of history. Second, God scatters the proud in his providence. Third, God fills the hungry in his providence. Fourth, and the fourth and final point is that God remembers his, his promises in his providence. God remembers his promises. Starting in verse 54, she says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. This, this sort of, what I'm getting ready to say, sort of came up in Sunday school as it was one of the comments. Have you ever noticed that your faith tends to be only as strong as your recollection of your latest blessing from God? Have you ever noticed that, that your, your faith tends to be dependent on, on that. It, it's only as strong as your, as your recollection of the most you know, recent thing that God's done for you. Our tendency, and that, the reason that happens is because our tendency is to forget most of the benefits that God has been pouring out on us day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out. That he's been pouring out on us for years and decades. We, we don't remember. Sometimes we forget the big things. We certainly forget the little things, the medium things, so-called. That's why David cried out in Psalm 103, verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul. He's talking to his soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his, what? Benefits. He had to remind his soul to remember. Because it was in his nature to forget. You have to remind your soul to remember because it's in your nature to forget. And here's my point having to do with the text. This is one of the ways that God is profoundly different from us. And that's the good news in this text. That's the good news. That's the gospel here. It's not in the nature of God to forget, as we do. He simply doesn't know how to do it. He, he can't forget his promises any more than he can stop being God. He doesn't know how to stop being God. He can't. It's impossible. When God declares a promise, it's etched in stone. He cannot forget it and he cannot break it. This was an important message for Mary and Elizabeth. Here she is, Mary is, staying with her relative Elizabeth for three months. And, and it's during a time when Israel's spiritual vitality was at an all-time low ebb. It, there weren't many people 
like Zacharias and Elizabeth and Joseph and Mary and Simeon and Anna, who had a living faith in Israel's God. And so they felt alone, and, and they probably wondered, everybody was wondering, even the ones without living faith, but were part of the covenant, they were wondering, where, where is God? What's he doing? Why is he so silent? He hasn't spoken to anyone in centuries. He's, he's, he, we've got all these promises hanging out there. He doesn't seem to be doing anything about them. Does it, does it even make sense to continue trusting in his promises? Did we get this whole thing wrong? Mary's answer is no to the last thing. Yes, he has remembered the covenant promises that he made to our father Abraham and to his seed. He hasn't forgotten. He's trustworthy. He's a remembering God, and he always has been. God was a remembering God even before he showed up to Elizabeth and, and Mary. I'll get the hang of this. Don't worry. He was a remembering God before he sent the angel. He was a remembering God 50 years earlier. He was a remembering God 200 years earlier. Even though he had been silent for a long time at those points. 50 years and 200 years earlier. God never forgets his promises to you. His guarantees to you in Christ. Even when the circumstances seem to suggest that he isn't making good on his word to make everything work out for your good. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. You can count on that. You can bank on that. The God we come to worship every Sunday, every Lord's Day. The God who is with you every minute of every day between Lord's Days. Whether you feel it or not, whether you experience it at a certain level or not, is the God of providence. It's the God of all power. He's the God of the humble and the lowly and the hungry. He's the God who fills the hungry with good things. He's the God who exalts the lowly. And he's the God who does not know how to forget the promises that he made to Abraham and his seed. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for making us seeds of Abraham by faith in the, the seed, Jesus Christ. And we exalt you. We exalt you because of your power. We exalt you because of your providence, your wisdom. We praise you because you are the only living and true God who is worthy of our praise and adoration. And we thank you for filling us with good things. Lord, this week, make us hungrier. Make us more lowly. So that instead of exalting ourselves, instead of filling 
our spiritual bellies with things that are not as good as what you have to give us, we might receive the best from you. Help us. We need your help in doing this. We need your help in trusting you. We need your help in looking to you instead of other places. And we thank you that you accomplish this work in us through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.